Hello, this is Digital Accessibility, the people behind the progress. I'm Joe Walensky, the creator and host of this series. And as an accessibility professional myself, I find it very interesting as to how others have found their way into this profession. So let's meet one of those people right now and hear about their journey. Well, hello, I'm Joe Walensky, and we are set for another episode where I get a chance to chat with an accessibility practitioner. And today I'm very pleased to be speaking with Jonathan Hassel. Hello, Jonathan. How are you today? Hey, Joe, I'm really good. Um, thank you for having me on the show. Really looking forward to an interesting chat. Yeah, well, I, I am as well, I, and I'm uh, recording this from my home office in Vashon Island, which is near Blink's uh, Seattle headquarters. Where are you talking to us from? So I'm talking to you from the place that Pocahontas is buried. Um, that's the only thing that is kind of famous about the place where I live, which is a place called Gravesend. It's in uh, Kent, about, uh, about um, sort of like 20 minutes outside London in the UK. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, you know, making time with me uh, over the time zones. Uh, it's great that we got that worked out. And uh, um, you know, you've been involved in uh, accessibility for a long time now. Uh, you know, many people may be familiar, but for those who aren't, why don't you just start by talking a little bit about your current work? My current work. Okay, cool. So I'm I'm CEO of a company called Hassle Inclusion. Uh, we've been running now for around about sort of uh, 11 years. Um, and uh, our spin, if you like, on accessibility is strategy, really. It's about trying to make sure uh, that organizations really get good at accessibility throughout the whole organization. Um, so a lot of the sorts of companies we work with uh, are quite large. Um, they're multinational. Uh, we may be headquartered in the UK, but we're working with companies all over the world. Um, and uh, really, we're the people who you bring in when you want to get really good at this. Maybe you've had a, uh, uh, an audit done of your site. Maybe you fixed it. Um, but actually, it's just one of a lot of different digital assets that you have. Maybe you've got an app as well, some social media. Maybe you're an organization who's got kiosks in branches and stores and things. Uh, our job really is to enable organizations to think about this strategically and to say, okay, if accessibility is a good thing to do, um, then how do we do this in the most efficient way uh, that gets us the most value from it? Well, uh, we've had uh, uh, a couple of uh, international guests as, as part of the program. Um, but, uh, most of the people have been from the United States and that's where what most of my experience has been. Uh, uh, with you being in the UK, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about some things that might be different about bring, being an accessibility practitioner, uh, you know, in that area, you know, versus maybe other parts of the world. 
So I've been working in accessibility for about 22 years. Um, uh, I used to come over to CSUN in San Diego when it, uh, when it was there, then in Anaheim um, every year. And so I know uh, I know a lot of people who work in accessibility in the US. We have an, a lot of US clients. Um, I think the thing that they always used to say uh, about what makes the UK and the US different um, is the reasons why people do accessibility in the US, even these days, are pretty much based around the law and around litigation and people making uh, sure that they don't get sued. Um, and uh, that's one of the things that I think uh, my American friends always say they love about the UK. In the UK, um, we we don't have so many lawsuits. We actually have a law which is a lot more strict um, than the ADA in the States, um, but we don't have a culture where we have lots of lawyers going around trying to use that law to kind of batter over the head uh, any uh, organizations who really don't know quite what they're doing. Um, the reasons that we do accessibility in the UK often tend to be a lot more positive. Um, and that's really the kind of like the angle that we come at accessibility from. Um, we, we don't wanna be insurance salespeople. You know, if the reason for doing accessibility is to insure yourself against um, being sued, um, then I'm an insurance salesman. Um, and I didn't get into this industry because I wanted to be in insurance. I wanted to be in uh, making sure that as many people get the benefit from digital as I can. Uh, and the people I happen to know most about and, uh, and an expert in are people with disabilities, but also people who are aging, um, who also have uh, accessibility needs as well. So a lot of what we do uh, here in the UK is to try and be really, really positive about the benefits that come uh, from accessibility. Um, you know, why would you want to lock out 20% of the population who have a disability from being able to use your retail website? Um, that doesn't really make very much sense. Um, um, or maybe the 20% of the population who have accessibility needs um, because they're older. Um, again, a lot of the people who have the uh, income to spend these days are the baby boomers. Um, so again, it makes no sense for you to lock them out. Um, the equally, uh, a lot of what we do with our, with our clients is really work out what benefits they could get from, uh, from uh, investing more in accessibility. And if you like going that little mile beyond WCAG, which is a really great start, um, but it can't encompass everything that is needed for a great user experience for everybody. Um, but once you start thinking about those user experiences and the sort of things that will make people come to your website and buy things, uh, for example, just an anecdote, a couple of days ago, um, we were doing some user testing uh, of a retail site um, with somebody who was blind. And one of the key things that they were saying about that website, the reason they loved it was because of the description of the products that they could buy there. Um, and uh, the, the website wasn't 
fully accessible. There are a few places where it was a bit clunky um, uh, for them to be able to use their screen reader to, um, to find all of the information to, to go through the transaction process. Um, but the reason that they thought the website was brilliant uh, was because the alt text on the items on the website was really descriptive. This was for, uh, for clothing, um, and so they've been to so many websites where the alt text for a product was pink blouse or white shirt. Um, and that's not enough if you want to buy that product. There are all sorts of elements of that product that are really important. So alt text is a great start, but actually what makes the difference there on that particular website was um, uh, a website that understands that somebody who's blind doesn't just need the minimum of alt text, but if they are actually going to make a purchasing decision based on this, um, they want to know, is it machine washable? Um, you know, uh, what sort of uh, sort of collar is there on a shirt? All of these sorts of things are the sorts of things where when you think a little bit more deeply beyond does it just have alt text to what do people need? Suddenly you take something uh, which can feel a little dry on occasions, accessibility, uh, and a little bit kind of rules-based uh, and actually take it further into user experience. So that's the sort of thing that we we kind of find ourselves doing more in the UK. It's less about um, the kind of like minutiae of WCAG um, and more about what sort of experience does it give people? Because if you can get that right, um, then you've got a lot more to win. Well, Ed, thanks for uh, cheering those insights uh, on that. And uh... Uh, I might have some more follow-up questions about your work a little bit later, but uh, one of the things that I always like to do in this program is to find out how people found their way into the work that they're doing now. So maybe you could go back in time and and talk about you know what events in your work life or lived life that uh, made you aware of accessibility and, and then aware of accessibility as a, a place where you might have your full-time profession. Sure. So two things happened pretty much at the turn of the century. So around about uh, around about the start of two th of the year two thousand, uh, uh, two things happened. Um, firstly, my nephew was born. Um, so he was born with a condition called spina bifida. Uh, what that means is that he uses a wheelchair. Um, uh, he has uh, a learning difficulty, um, and he's slightly autistic. Um, so what that meant was I had a personal relationship in uh, issues around disability. Um, bang on the same time, I got a new job uh, working at the BBC um, uh, in the UK. And it was my job to, uh, to help all of the different websites that were being created at the time um, understand what good practice looked like when it came to design, when it came to coding, things like page weight or how you created uh, RSS feeds or any of these sorts of things um, that people could 
if you like, have a diverging view. We had all sorts of different sort of production teams internally and externally who were creating things. It was my job to bring together the experts in a particular area and say, okay, what is the, the commonality? What is the best that we can do at this? How do we write that down? How do we share that with each other so that we can all do uh, digital in a way that really gives a great experience for people? And um, uh, second week I was on the job, my, my boss came to me and said, we're the BBC, um, we're for everybody. Um, we've always cared about people with disabilities. You know, on the TV, we've had subtitles and captions. We've had uh, audio description. We've had uh, signing uh, for people who use British Sign Language. Um, now we're doing all of this stuff online. We need to make sure um, that uh, we can make uh, what we're doing online accessible as well. And uh, he said, you know, do you know anything about this? And I said, no, not really. And he said, well, don't worry, I don't either, but we've commissioned this report um, from some folks who do, and they did a test of uh, a few of the BBC websites. And, um, and it came back and there were some good things, but uh, there was a lot that showed the, the, the teams across the organization really didn't know what they needed to do. Um, and he said, it's your job to change that. It's your job to fix it. And not just fix it on one web website, but fix it on 400. Um, and not to just to fix it on the stuff that we've got now, but to actually make us good at this when we're going forward. So uh, I had this great opportunity to take WCAG 1, that it was then, uh, and uh, take that forwards and to say, okay, how do we enable people to understand this? How do we enable um, them to uh, actually embed this in their practices so that when they're creating a new website, when they're maintaining a site, um, whether they're a developer, a designer, a content person, even someone who's creating games, um, how do they make sure that they're thinking about the needs of all of these people with disabilities? That was the year 2000. We're now in 2022. Um, and I've become more and more convinced that um, this is the coolest part of digital, really. Um, you know, uh, it's not easy necessarily on occasions to, to make things work for people with a disability whose uh, preferences may be very, very different from everybody else's, um, but it makes it the best challenge that you can get. So really in the, in the 22 years since then, my job has been to try and educate as many people as possible uh, on how to get this right, not just at a technical level, but also as a strategic level as well. So it's not just the developers and the designers, but it's also the product managers and project managers. And fundamentally, all of the people at the top of the organization who might be thinking, how much of this disability stuff, this accessibility stuff should we be doing? Um, and how, you know, how much money should we be spending on this? How much time should we be spending on this? Um, what is the best way of delivering this in a way um, that fits our business goals? And that's the sort of thing that uh, I've written international standards on uh, and have been helping organizations all over the world with my teams really get good at. Well, uh, you know, just uh, kind of going back to that, uh, the experience uh, that you had at, at the BBC, uh, that's 
maybe a good example that we could follow up on where it sounds like you're you're really jumping into the deep end of the of the of the pool, which is difficult for anyone uh, when you come upon a new domain and you have to uh, become an expert before you can make solutions. Uh, so, what was that experience like? Uh, what were the types of uh, resources or process that you used to be able to educate yourself and identify, you know, the way to move forward with such a within such a large organization? Sure. So. Probably, I mean, so WCAG one was there. That was a really great start. Um, uh, I think probably though the, the the best resources that were available at the time were things like user testing. So actually understanding where WCAG came from, you know, what it was trying to do. If there are lots of kind of uh, uh, bits of information in there about what, you know what you needed to do to help people. Um, but there is nothing better than actually talking to people who have a disability themselves, um, because you then understand what's behind those things. Um, so a lot of what we were doing, and this was really early on, you know, I mean, WCAG um, was, was quite new. Um, uh, it was pretty good in a lot of places, but it was also quite impenetrable. Um, uh, a lot of people throughout the organization um, uh, we really had to grapple with it, with designers and developers and, and everybody to kind of say, what does this actually mean? Uh, but, but more important, maybe, than what does it mean? What does it mean for me in my job? How do I actually do this? You know, um, and so my best resources, if you like, were the people around me who were able to say, um, I don't quite understand that yet, Jonathan. Can you explain that a little bit more clearly? Or um, I do understand that, but I don't know how we're going to afford to do it. And this is where I feel that, um, uh, if you like, what we at Hassle Inclusion, uh, what makes us different from everybody else, because um, we're very, very keen on... Um, uh, things like cost benefits analysis, like return on investments, you know, how much does accessibility actually cost to do? Um, how much can you benefit um, if you do accessibility? You know, okay, you can sleep better in your bed at night knowing that you've done the right thing and that the lawyers are looking elsewhere. Um, but actually, as an organization, how much you, should you be spending on this? You know, if certain things are, are expensive. Um, then are they worth it? Um, and a lot of what I was doing was trying to do that across an entire uh, organization who wanted to do the right thing um, and had a history of doing that, but also um, you know, needed to make sure that it was feasible, affordable, um, and actually uh, was understandable to all of their, their people. So, and again, the interesting thing about the BBC was that we spanned across a huge number of genres of websites. So we had people in news um, for which the most important thing was to get the news there right now. Um, you know, if so, for example, things like you've got a bit of video um, let's wait to put some captions on it before you go live. That doesn't work um, because it's not news anymore. 
Um, so, so that was a really interesting sort of challenge over there. We had um, other parts of uh, of the BBC who were putting the entirety of the BBC TV online. So, one of the things that we were looking at was how do you scale TV services for uh, for digital. So, we were one of the first. Uh, video on demand services way before sort of Netflix and all the rest. Um, uh, I was, uh, you know, one of the first people in the world to get audio description, sort of uh, a fundamental part of a video on demand system, won a lot of awards for these sorts of things. We did stuff in education. Um, we did stuff in games. We did stuff um, uh, in all sorts of different areas. Um, uh, and that's what, why it was so interesting, if you like, because we had within the one organization um, so many different types of content that we had to work out how accessibility would play across all of them. Um, and uh, that made it really important to make sure that we had the right processes in place. None of them were there, really. And really, you couldn't get them out of WCAG. WCAG was great for the technical stuff. Um, and it was great if you wanted to test something, but if you wanted to know when to test something, how to test something, how expensive different types of testing might be, um, uh, how it might be better to actually spend money that you could be spending really badly um, just before launch, much earlier in the process by training people so they got it right first time so you weren't having to fix loads of stuff in a really expensive way just prior to launch we had to kind of create all of this stuff for ourselves if you like um, and so the international standard uh, ISO 30071 part one that I published in 2019 um, was actually based on work that I did in the UK uh, in 2010, and that was based on work that I did at the BBC all the way through uh, the noughties um, to really start to understand how, as an organization, uh, we could do this stuff really efficiently. You know, how could we get good at this, especially when a lot of people with expertise weren't available? Well, I you mentioned how uh, the W3C standards, uh, the early uh, WCAG, had helped you out. And that now you've just mentioned uh, your work with uh, standards development. And, and certainly it, it's really important that people within our community uh, contribute to help build these standards. Um, could you talk more about the standards that you were specifically involved with and, and uh, you know what that work was like? Sure, absolutely. Well, number one, I mean, kudos to, to W3C for, for all the, the all the work they've done on WCAG. It was really good. I had to make a decision when I was at the at the BBC whether or not to get really deeply involved um, in WCAG itself. Um, and what I found was that by that point, I was at the, the point in my career where I was a manager. I wasn't a coder. Um, I was a manager and I was trying to sort of make this work across everything. So rather than work on technical standards like WCAG, um, I figured that enough great people were doing uh, doing that already. A lot of them I knew. Um, 
Uh, what they weren't doing was what we were trying to do at the BBC and what I've been doing ever since, really, which is to look at that strategic level on top of WCAG to say, OK, if WCAG is great for, for those, those folk who are, if you like, creating the product, how does everybody else, you know, if I'm a, say, uh, the, well, I'll just take me, actually, when I left the BBC. So I left the BBC and set up Hassle Inclusion. Um, so my own company, I uh, didn't really know very much about running a company, um, but I wanted to make sure that, that people were able to use the experience that I'd had. So um, I needed a website. Um, so I worked out that the best way of getting a website for my company um, was to use WordPress. Um, so a content management system. Um, and I tried to find the most accessible theme for WordPress. That was very, very different from what I was doing at the BBC. At the BBC, I had loads of, of content uh, developers, loads of designers, loads of uh, developers. We did everything from scratch in HTML. Uh, it was fabulous. So therefore, WCAG was the solution to most of our questions. But when you're looking at, okay, I'm not actually going to um, write a line of code myself at all, and I'm actually going to be standing on, if you like, the shoulders of, of, of other people who are going to be creating a content management system and all of the rest of the code for me. The questions that you ask about accessibility are completely different. Um, uh, you know, um, is this content management system accessible? Does it have the right sort of people um, you know, doing things in it. Can I build stuff on top of it? This is the sort of thing that we now all do. You know, everybody uses a content management system and most of what is uh, in our websites wasn't created by us. It was created by Adobe or WordPress or Drupal or whomever it was, Sitecore. So a lot of what accessibility is, is not about can I code my HTML right, but can I do my relationships and contracts right? Can I pick the right technologies to use? Um, uh, Joe, I know you work for a digital agency. So people will come to your agency and say, can you build me a website? Um, uh, now, they probably don't know anything about a, a WCAG other than it's a bunch of uh, sort of letters that they can ask you to uh, um, to prove that you can deliver to them. So a lot of what, uh, what we were trying to do in the international standard is to say, if websites are built on technologies that you choose, or built by digital agencies that you subcontract the creation of your site to. Accessibility is as much about how you handle those contractual relationships as it is the technical stuff. Um, and that's the sort of, if you like, emphasis of the standards that we've created. What we find um, these days is that the reason why most websites aren't accessible has got nothing to do with the, the people who own those websites don't understand WCAG. 
Um, it's got all to do with the fact that those the people who owned those websites didn't make those websites and didn't ask the people who made those websites uh, anything about accessibility when they uh, when they started um, that sort of contractual process. And it's that sort of thing um, which the international standard that we created is all about. The reality of, if you like, all of the managerial stuff that sits around the technical stuff. Is that making sense? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> well, uh, with with all the experience that you had uh, through the BBC and the work with the uh, standards development in your own consulting organization, uh, I mean, looking ahead, are there any uh, things that you're particularly excited about looking forward for the things that you're doing, uh, you know, with your company or more generally, uh, your thoughts about the growth of the accessibility profession? Oh, yeah. So it's the last bit. That's the bit I'm excited about. Um, so back in the day, I knew everybody in the UK, at least, and pretty much a lot of countries um, who knew anything about accessibility. It used to be a very small field with a very few people who were desperately trying to get uh, large organizations, their bosses, their stakeholders, their budget holders to listen to them. A lot has changed, thankfully. You know, 2022, um, uh, the imperative of accessibility is now pretty much understood by, you know, countless percent more organizations um, than, than in the past. Um, we have something we call um, uh, the Digital Accessibility Maturity Scorecard. Um, it's, uh, it's a mechanism, it's completely free. Um, I can put a link in uh, to this, but for organizations who really want to get good at accessibility across the whole organization, they can, uh, they can use this to kind of score themselves. So if you like, if WCAG is is you scoring yourself for the accessibility of your product, your website, your app. Um, this scorecard scores you, uh, your organization. Um, have you got the right things in place as an organization to be able to continually, repeatably, sustainably, and efficiently deliver this stuff every single time you do something digitally across the whole organization? The really interesting thing is that um, we've had about uh, 300 organizations all over the world who've been filling in this scorecard. We've just got a report coming out uh, that will be available by the time this goes live. Um, the number of organizations that really care about accessibility uh, and are motivated to get it right these days is more than ever before. Um, the problem is we still aren't getting the messages across about how best for organizations to do that. So the, the stuff that I'm really excited about is that um, the people at the, at the top table are slowly getting to understand that this stuff is not just about that insurance policy that I was talking about. This is about uh, their business. This is about if they get good at this, uh, it is not only good for their PR and yes, their, their sort of risk mitigation, but it also makes sense for them fundamentally as an organization who wants to either sell to people who have a disability or actually employ people who have a disability. And so a lot of what we're doing um, is to try and help organizations understand how well they are doing 
um, in that bigger picture. You know, it's great that organizations are getting uh, websites uh, more accessible, but what about their social media? What about the documents that they that they put on those websites that people are consuming? What about everything they do for their staff? All of the tools that you use day in, day out. You know, we're using Zoom now um, that has, um, uh, you know, uh, facilities within it to enable captioning and all sorts of things. This sort of stuff is massively important for an organization to be good at accessibility. And when I created, you know, the um, uh, ISO 30071 part one with a huge committee of people who took our British standard and said, is this going to work in China or in Korea or the States or Canada or Brazil or all sorts of different parts of the world? We signed it off in Japan. Um, uh, we looked through to see what organizations needed to do to get really good at this. Um, and in 2022, this is good PR. You know, the Valuable 500 have signed up 500 of the top companies in the world to be committed to doing something good for disability. But none of them really know how to actually take that promise and make it a plan and something that they deliver. And that's the sort of stuff that we have in our international standard. Um, it's a blueprint to get good at this sort of stuff. Um, if you like, it takes things from a single website level and does it scaled to sort of like industrial level. So that organizations who have got loads of different uh, digital mechanisms uh, can get good at this throughout the lot. And our scorecard is a really great free, simple way, takes 15 minutes, you answer about 70 questions about how accessibility plays within your, within your business. Uh, and then uh, you get out of that a score on various different levels. Um, and that enables organizations to understand where they're at and what potential next best steps are. And as I say, the report that we've got uh, that's just come out um, is the result of the anonymized form of a lot of those, where we've looked at lots of different organizations and we've said, what is actually working? Um, you know, how do you get your um, stakeholders on side so that you can actually get buy-in to get accessibility done right where you work? Um, because it requires money. It requires support from the people at the top. How do you do that? What happens if you haven't got that? What are the things that really matter? Um, you know, some of the some of the findings of the report are a little bit scary. You know, we found that uh, about thirty seven percent of organisations are launching products um, uh, without testing them um, for accessibility. But worse than that, and this is the thing that really frustrates me. 35% of organizations who do test the accessibility of their website put it live anyway without fixing anything. So people are spending their money testing the accessibility of their websites, thinking that that's what accessibility is. And it's not. Fixing your website uh, and making it good 
um, so that the next time you don't even have to fix it, that it's actually, um, if you like, designed in from the start. That's what accessibility is. And the idea that we've got loads of audit reports swilling around the world that nobody is actually doing anything about is just a waste of money. Um, from our perspective, um, we're hoping that uh, what's coming through with this, if you like, trajectory that uh, we see uh, coming on. We've got loads of organizations who are finding uh, the sort of strategic way we do accessibility and saying, that's what we need. That's the thing that's actually going to take accessibility from something we're scared about to something that we feel we can do. And we can do in a way that really benefits our company. That's what I'm, I'm really excited about. And as I say, that's the sort of stuff um, that if people are interested in, we, you know, we can bring to them. Well, we'll uh, definitely uh, include the links to the uh, scorecard and the report that, uh, that you mentioned. And uh, Jonathan, uh, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk about your experience and uh, a little bit about uh, your thoughts about the profession. And uh, hopefully we can actually meet in the real world at some point. That would be great, Joe. Uh, I'd love that, uh, as I say. And thank you. I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of all of the people who will be watching. Uh, you know, what you're doing in getting accessibility information out to a widest audience um, is, is brilliant. Uh, you know, we run webinars monthly every uh, every month to, to, to try and sort of help with the same sort of thing. But actually sort of like getting people like me, uh, like all of the other people like me who have been really trying to get this stuff working great for ages, uh, you know, on uh, on Zoom like this available for people uh, is a great thing. So thank you so much for what you do. Uh, and I hope this helps a lot of people. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Hi, I'm Joe Walensky, and as host of the Digital Accessibility Program, I like to keep the focus on our amazing guests. But I'm always excited about my role as Accessibility Director at Blink, the producer of this program, and I'd like to share that with you. Blink is the world's leader in evidence-driven design, and we work with a wide variety of clients. Founded in Seattle, we also have offices in Boston, New York, Austin, San Diego, and San Francisco. Our stated mission is to make technology human. Embracing inclusive design and accessibility brings all of us closer to that mission. We bring accessibility in every one of our projects. Our philosophy is that each of our practitioners should understand how accessibility applies to their own work. Accessibility is not a separate department or activity for us. Our researchers, designers, and developers all employ accessibility principles at every stage. If you have a need for research and design services, Blink is a partner with a full-time commitment to making your product or service accessible and a great experience for all of your customers. Some of the specific areas where we can help, using research to better understand the needs of your customers with disabilities, innovating to make sure your accessibility is the best in class design, we can move existing designs to development in a sprint. And maybe most importantly, we provide a turnkey transformation to an accessible site or app. 
Of course, compliance status is something that we always include as part of the service. If any of this is of interest, please get in touch with me directly at joe at blinkux.com. That's J-O-E at B-L-I-N-K-U-X dot com. Thank you. And please take a moment to rate our program in whatever app you use.